Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. In 2005, a Bollywood-esque version of Pride and Prejudice made its way to St. Louis, Missouri, where I was living at the time. I had never seen a Bollywood movie before. I was intrigued by the idea of seeing my first one as an adaptation of Pride and Prejudice and was really excited that it was by the same director as a movie I loved, Bend It Like Beckham. But then the movie got panned. The New York Times wrote that it was, quote, rife with cliché as anything ever churned out by Hollywood, but with worse production values and a load of sanctimonious political correctness. I didn't go and see the movie and forgot about my desire to watch Bollywood films for well over a decade. I sat down to watch Bride and Prejudice with my family for the first time earlier this year, almost 20 years after its release. We had a great time. The movie cleverly sets this modern adaptation around a wedding. Bingley and Darcy are visiting India from out of town to attend the party. The performances are charming. The song and dance numbers are sometimes odd and sometimes truly delightful. My stepdaughters and I were singing No Life Without Wife for days after we watched the movie. pretty close adaptation of Pride and Prejudice, with, obviously, some twists. Mary is adapted as an awkward older teen with a penchant for belly dancing, and it's kind of awesome. Naveen Andrews has been a crush of mine since Lost, so seeing him as Bingley hit a nerve of 20-year-old desire. And then, of course, there's Lizzie Bennett, Lalita, played by Ashwarya Rai. Rai was Miss World of 1994 and was considered the queen of Bollywood. She was so famous at the time of this movie's release that she had advertising deals with both Coca-Cola and Pepsi. In the film, the fights between Darcy, who's white, and Lalita, who's Punjabi, aren't about class or snobbery, but about colonialism, which is a smart turn of cultural specificity. Darcy is American, not British, which makes him, as a hotelier, complicit in the westernization of India, but not India's direct oppressor. What is most interesting to me about Bride and Prejudice is that it was sold to me in 2005 as a Bollywood film for beginners. It is a movie geared toward me, a white lady who loves Austin, trying to introduce me to Bollywood. And therein lies its genius. 
It exploits the West's love of Pride and Prejudice as an introductory course to a wildly popular genre in South Asia. In talking about adaptations of Pride and Prejudice, discussing Bride and Prejudice felt absolutely necessary. In 2005, it was a cultural moment. And this was a film about India by an Indian filmmaker with Indian actors, including one of the world's most famous actors, who most Americans had never heard of. And the vehicle she was given to be introduced to the West was Pride and Prejudice. It wasn't just an important moment for Bollywood, but an important moment for Jane Austen. We are lucky to have the wonderful cultural critic, translator, writer, and film scholar, Badatri Chowdhury, on this episode to discuss Bride and Prejudice. Badatri was born and raised in Calcutta and moved to the United States to study cinema at New York University's Tisch School of the Arts. She's the arts and entertainment editor of the Philadelphia Inquirer and a regular on NPR. I'm Vanessa Zoltan, and this is Live from Pemberley from Hot and Bothered. Hi, Bidatri. Hi, Vanessa. Thank you for having me here. Thank you for being here. I am very excited to talk to you about Bride and Prejudice, which I just watched for the first time Friday night. I have to tell you, I was someone who in the 90s and early aughts watched the show Siskel and Ebert every Sunday night, and it would review the five biggest movies that were coming out in the movie theaters that week, and it was either thumbs up or thumbs down. And Bride and Prejudice was the first Bollywood movie to be covered on Siskel and Ebert. And then it got a special place on 60 Minutes. Like this movie was in the cultural zeitgeist. And it felt like white critics were very proud of themselves for covering a Bollywood movie. So that's my first question for you. Is this a Bollywood movie? Um, No, because it's not produced in India. I mean, Bollywood, like you know, is a derivative term for Hollywood, for films that's made in Bombay, which is now Mumbai, which is like the seat of the Indian Hindi film industry. Yeah, I would argue it's not a Bollywood film because primarily because the uh, filmmaker is British. She is British Punjabi, but she's British. It's a British production. So I would I would say it's not a Bollywood film per se, but I, I, I do think it shares a lot of Bollywood conventions of song and dance and plot devices and stuff like that. Well, what is your relationship to Bollywood movies in general? Oh, my God. Uh, It's my blood type. (laughs) That's good to know in case you need a transfusion during this interview. Exactly. Um, You know, there's a billion of us, so it's it's not hard. (laughs) No, I I grew up in India. I grew up watching, although I'm not from a family that speaks Hindi as the first language. But, you know, when you grew up in India, it's very much in the zeitgeist of things. It's the films that you watch. It's the films that you watch with your parents, with your friends, by yourself. Mm -hmm. You could say I grew up surrounded by it. And what is your relationship to this film? Have you seen it before? Do you like it? I had seen it before. I had seen it when it released. And this came after Gurinder Chadda, the filmmaker, she made Bend It Like Beckham, which for me is like the film. Like, I think it's such a beautiful film. It's one of my favorite films ever. Again, not a Bollywood film. It is one of the best films ever. Absolutely. I'm so glad you agree. So I don't have to fight you on this. But I 
don't remember liking it a lot back then, which is also perhaps unfair because I was comparing it to Bandit Like Beckham constantly. And I, I think it's objectively true that it's not as good as that film. It just feels like a dated film. And I went back and Googled and I saw it was only made in 2004 when we were having very different conversations about India beyond what this film is doing. So yeah. I would still say some parts of it are very trite and like, you know, the writing is not very strong. But all in all, I think it did a good job of making a few very good points about arranged marriage and what is it like because, you know, the Western media has this idea of arranged marriage as something that's cruel, like, you know, that goes against free will and choice. And I, I like how the film, even back in 2004, was making a case for it works, for who it works. But also the Western society is not that different because you guys are doing it too. So I think, I think those points that the film makes, um, that was ahead of its time, definitely. Yeah, I mean, it's an imperialist movie, right? Because it's taking a canonical British text and combining Indian popular culture. And then mm -hmm. it's also trying to subvert a lot of colonial ideas. Yeah, I'm wondering what you think of that choice. Do you think that this movie is essentially a movie for Western audiences, for white audiences to be like, here, let me give you, you know, Indian culture 101 with a story that you will find recognizable and palatable? Or do you think that the movie is more than that and is trying for other things as well? I definitely think it's a film for Western audiences because it doesn't teach me. I mean, you know, I don't think all films need to be like teaching moments, but it doesn't tell me anything about the Indian culture and identity that A, I didn't know, or B, that I wanted to know more about. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong in that. There's nothing wrong in making a film for a foreign audience, if you will, that tells you that Indian women are not, you have this idea of Indian women being subservient, obedient, and all of those things, which are great things to be, but that's not what all Indian women are like. And we have these very strong, opinionated, strong-willed Indian women characters. And me staying in India, I didn't think I needed that reminder because I was surrounded by them. And again, like, you know, there's nothing wrong in making a film that demystifies or destigmatizes your country and its ways for um, a foreign audience. Right. It's just more of a diplomatic mission than exactly. of the genre yeah. that it's claiming to be, or at least that white audiences were pretending that it was. White audiences were like, look, an authentic Bollywood film. And it's actually this piece of like, no, here, let us explain to you part of our culture using things that you will find familiar and comforting. Yeah. And what's interesting is this film comes in 2004. Mm -hmm. And in 2001, we've already had Monsoon Wedding, which is also about arranged marriages and a big wedding. And it was a film largely in English and largely foreign producers too. So I wouldn't call that film Bollywood either. But that does a much better job of revealing something about the Indian society and the Indian class divide and the Indian lives, even to people living in the country. So I would say if you're listening to this podcast and you want a movie wreck, of course, you watch this film and tell us what you think about it. But you also go watch Monsoon Wedding and just see how differently the two films uh, talk about arranged marriage. Oh, I love Monsoon Wedding. Such a great wreck. I'm wondering, because you are someone who knows Pride and Prejudice 
in addition to knowing Bride and Prejudice and Bollywood. I'm wondering what you think, if anything, Bride and Prejudice teaches us about Pride and Prejudice, if it illuminates anything. I'm thinking about the attraction between Lizzie and Darcy's characters, who you know are, are Darcy and Lolita in Bride and Prejudice, and it's about different cultural perspectives on marriage, right? There is a white culture and an Indian culture, whereas in Pride and Prejudice, it's about class. And we could argue that that is teaching us that essentially, if you're an English speaker and white in this world right now, you are inherently of a different class than people of color in other countries. But I'm wondering what you think about that. No, that's a very interesting point you make. And, you know, especially I was thinking about class a lot when I was rewatching this film. You'll see the Bakshis, who are the Bennets in this film, they have servants and they live in a very big house and they are landed. Yes, they've seen better days, which is why they see marrying their daughters into a rich family as a way of social mobility or as a way of coming out of their financial troubles. But if you're looking at class, they're not quote-unquote poor. And it's interesting how those things transform because of race. Mm -hmm. Because even if you look at the character of Johnny... Wickham. Right, he's Wickham. And he is, again, of a lower class. But given that he's a white-skinned foreigner visiting India, he still has this social social cachet to a point where Lalita desires him and like Lucky desires him too. So there's like this affording of a social class in a way that where his financial class does not matter so much. Yeah, there's the skin color. And then Lolita is also big on there's tourist India and then there's real India, right? This is a movie that takes place in a smaller city in India or at least not Mumbai and not Delhi. And so there's also this argument within the text that the Darcy's of this world don't understand what real life is. Real life isn't a hotel. It's not wealth. It's not Pemberley. It's this other thing. It's family. It's dealing with your awkward sister who's going to do a cobra dance right after dinner. (laughs) Like it is dealing with the reality of being in a house that's not necessarily the center of the world. You know, and, and and I think it's very deliberate where she places the location to be Goa because that's where the white hippies go. And then to make this distinction between this is what you see, this is where you visit, and this is where I live. Yeah. And where I live is very different from your idea of India. But I just don't know if 2004 is the time to be making that point because one would hope those points have been made. You know what I mean? Yeah. It was it was referring to conversations in 2004 that had already happened in the 90s. Yeah, I think in watching this movie, I was like, oh, this feels like a 90s movie. But it's not, which is the thing. It, it, it looks and feels like a 90s film in its very direct and uh, sometimes unnuanced depictions and conversations, but it's not a 90s film. <laughs> Speaking of, I do think one of the things that's more modern than a 90s film is that Lolita is at least presented as kind of political, right? She's someone who's really willing to speak her political beliefs. When you think about, you know, My Best Friend's Wedding, one of my all-time favorite movies, like the badass women in that, they're not spouting politics. And Lolita is. Her frustration with Darcy is tied up in a defense of India. But I'm wondering if you still read her as a very westernized character. 
You know, what I love about that character is there is this idea that Indian women want to marry white men for the green card, for the citizenship, and like they'll do what the white man says. And Lalita doesn't. And also what is important, and Gurinder Chadha makes it a point to show it, I think twice or three times over the film, is that she is heavily invested in her father's business. Mm -hmm. She's not just like shopping and doing nothing. She is working. She's a working woman. And that she doesn't really need to get married, but she's choosing love and choosing to get married. And not for the green card. She doesn't really need it. She loves where she is. And and you're right, like she's political. She's making these very pronounced statements. And one of the reasons she ends up liking Wickham is because he cooks up the sob story. And she's like, oh my God, you've you've been wronged in life. So she has this... You know, she's looking out for people. She's looking out for the underdog. She's looking out for people who may not have had it that good in life. And again, like, you know, it's not saying saying things to saying sharp pointed things to Darcy in her hometown is one thing. But to like go to the hotel in Beverly Hills and say this in front of the mother who's like this millionaire heiress is quite another. And I And it's refreshing to see her hold that ground and not be that subservient. And, you know, push back on this idea of what does a tradition, quote unquote, traditional Indian woman look like? Yeah, I love it on two levels. I love how subversive it is against what a traditional Indian woman looks like. But also this version of Lizzie is not a Lizzie who changes. She is political at the beginning of the movie, and she is political and willing to speak truth to power at the end of the movie. And again, it's not like a typical, like, feminine arc of, oh, you learn over time to stand up for yourself. Lolita is always someone who stands up for herself and for her culture. I guess the big change she makes, and I'm curious what you think, if this is a buildings roman, is like not all white people are bad. (laughs) But I don't know if she otherwise makes a change. But she definitely does not get simmered down, right? She's just as passionate in the closing frame as she was in the opening frame. I think one education that she gets is when Chandra marries Kohli, where like she has this idea that it has to be passionate, it has to be romantic. And she apologizes. She says, I'm sorry, because I took a moral higher ground over you, who's my best friend, because you wanted to marry this man, because you want to be comfortable in life. It's very subtle, but I think that's a moment of learning because I think, and that's the only time she apologizes in the film where she's like, yeah, I want to live my life like this free-spirited Indian woman, but if somebody else chooses to take a more comfortable route to happiness, she should be okay with it. I think that's the only change that she has. And and I think it's important. It's very important to be a modern, quote-unquote, modern woman and still you know, have the grace to allow space for other women in and around your circles who are making very different choices and for reasons that work for them. Coley is the best adaptation of Mr. Collins that I've ever seen on film. I mean, the costuming, the costuming for Mr. Collins with the the workout pants, but also the like sports coat. Oh my God. Yeah. And the gold chain. He has to wear the gold chain because he's a rich Indian boy and he's coming. Yeah. And it's again, very interesting how class plays out in that way, because he's also, he's also, and a lot of earlier Indian um, immigrants to America are like that, where 
it's like India is filthy. That's why I left it. But you come back to get your wife. And then having having said that, I, I, I it's a very funny character, but like it grosses me out every time he eats and he eats like that. And I honestly have not seen a single Indian eat like that. So mm-hmm. to take it to that extreme, I was like, okay, I mean, you want to say the white man is good, but you don't have to show that the brown man is like absolutely a brute. Yeah. <laughs> you know, who's like, like curry trickling down their arm and all that. I don't think she needed to get there. I know I feel that way when Jewish characters are represented. I'm like, yes, that specific Jewish man does exist. But they, they're an exception, and now people aren't going to know that. And, and in this respect, I think the father's role is so beautiful. I mean, he does it so well, so balanced. Mr. Bakshi is so balanced and relatively feminist in the way he's bringing up his daughters. And especially because that's like the only other Indian man from India that you see in the film And the other one is Balraj, who's like Oxford educated. So, you know, there's that veneer on him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're right. It's it's like, yeah, this is, I'm sure one Indian man exists who has terrible table manners. But, you know, it doesn't have to be representative. You just helped me understand why the Mr. Bennett adaptation is written the way that it is. Because it's interesting, right? Mr. Bakshi is so different from Mr. Bennett. There are no snide comments. There's no mocking his wife. He loves his wife. She annoys him, but he is like, oh, I wish you were a better mom in this and that way. But he really is this just like bastion of goodness. But I think that you're right that with the four daughters, you have a representation of wonderful Indian women who don't have that Western sheen. And so you kind of need Mr. Bakshi to be to be there like, here is a good Indian man who also doesn't have that Oxford sheen. Yeah, yeah. And also, it's it's interesting because, you know, you, you think that all Indian parents want to marry their daughters off to Americans and British men. But here's a guy who says, I would actually like my daughters to live closer to where I am. To yeah. stay close, yeah. Yeah, so I think, I think his character is a very well re- rewrite of Mr. Bennett. Yeah, I would just say that it's the most different of all of the characters who are adapted. Like, Lady Catherine is not Darcy's aunt. She's Darcy's mom. But she's awful in the exact same way and is trying to set him up with a woman named Anne. Mrs. Bakshi is just as ridiculous as Mrs. Bennet. Like, other than the fact that Kitty gets disappeared from the Bakshi family, there's a pretty great representation on a one-to-one basis. Yeah. Yeah, and you don't see well-etched-out Indian father figure so much in films. And again, it's the same actor who plays the father in Bennett like Beckham. And it's it's almost an extension of that very nurturing, giving, understanding father. Yeah. Who's probably not perfect. He's still bound by the social rules as he knows them. But he's trying to make the best out of that given situation he's in, and uh, which is beautiful to see. I'd love to compare two of the other Indian men, Kohli versus Balraj. They are both Indian men who emigrated, but they inhabit those immigrant identities very differently, right? Kohli's identity makes him an awkward fit on both sides. Like, he's not a good American. You could tell he's trying too hard to use these catchphrases, 
But that also makes him a worst Indian. Whereas with Balraj, we read him as like very idealized. His connection to the UK makes him even more desirable. I'm interested in whether or not you think that this is a US or UK thing, or is it a class thing, or is it something else? Yeah, you know, I, I would definitely say it's it's more class than nationality because they are first generation British Indians and they live in that palace next to <laughs> Windsor Castle with the view of the Thames and stuff. So I, I think it's it's very clearly established that they're very economically sound. But Kohli, at the end of the day, is an immigrant himself. He's not first generation. He's not even, quote unquote, not, not even first generation. He's an immigrant himself. So, and I think what Balraj's class and money can buy him is something that Kohli can't afford yet. And I would say that just Balraj's acceptance into the British society and the British way of life is aided by his Oxford education and his very moneyed family, which Kohli, I mean, may or may not have. We just haven't been told if he has it, but I would guess he doesn't because he goes back to the same hometown. So I think that is that is a difference between being someone who you know, whose family has been in the UK for a while, as opposed to Kohli, who's an immigrant himself and is probably a software engineer working in the Silicon Valley. That is one of the great ways that I think Pride and Prejudice maps just brilliantly to Pride and Prejudice, is that it susses out cultural nuances in very specific ways. You know, there's a difference as a child of immigrants who has to translate to their parents versus a child of immigrants who has English-speaking parents, right? Like all of these teeny tiny ways that we are socially coded to one another. And that's that's Austin's great gift, right? You can be wealthy and just like slightly not beautiful and you're Charlotte Lucas instead of Lizzie Bennet. You can have a brother or not and therefore break the entail or not, right? There are these teeny tiny codes that change your fate. And I think both Bride and Prejudice and Pride and Prejudice do that so well. Absolutely. And, you know, again, when I read Pride and Prejudice, it was like so much about soiled petticoats and, you know, climbing trees and jumping fences. And and of course, we're this is in 2004 where women have that kind of mobility in the outer world. So to not stress on those things and focus on these smaller points of how class plays out. And also in this case, like, you know, transposing it with how race uh, plays into all of this entire equation. Okay. So I just have to end with a couple of smaller questions. Do you have a favorite song in Bride and Prejudice? Because I do. Oh, the, it's, the songs are long, but I would say that first party song where Balraj meets Jaya and there is like this very playful teasing between boys and girls, men and women. And I think that's just so well choreographed. And then again, like when I said in the beginning of our conversation where it shares a lot of Bollywood conventions and it's, it sets the tone for the film so beautifully that take a seat, this is going to be grand. There are going to be lots of songs, lots of dance, and just the color and the costumes and stuff. So I think that is my favorite song. Yeah, it reminded me in some ways of the song America in like the 1960s movie of West Side Story, where it's two very colorful groups, one of men and one of women flirting and arguing. And it's it's fantastic. I got to say, though, my favorite is No Life Without Wife. 
Oh yeah, that 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 one's yeah. That that one's fun too. I I think I just the many versions of of show me the way take me to love like i think it's one too many but i agree with you i i think that's a very fun song too it's like disco singing at its best you know girls singing into hairbrushes i'm very into it my last question is that there's a moment in the middle of one of the songs when the girls are out shopping downtown and a song breaks out in the streets and there's just this like 30-second moment of drag. And I was wondering, because there's also a 30-second moment of drag in Pride and Prejudice. So as someone who doesn't know the cultural signifiers of Bollywood, I was wondering whether I should read that as a nod to the original text of Pride and Prejudice, or is cross-dressing in dance a typical part of Bollywood dancing? We we grew up with this idea of a third gender, and we're moving into like esoteric queer studies here great love it this is a third gender and they're not i i wouldn't i think by western queer terminology they would be seen as trans but they're not necessarily uh deemed or considered that way Uh, so this community they're called the hijra community h-i-j-r-a and uh yeah you're right they're not cis women uh, who live their lives out as women. They identify as women, but they're not necessarily cis women. And one interesting part, and I love how they bring this in, is although they do live pretty marginalized lives within the Indian society, their presence is auspicious in happy occasions, like when there is a birth, when there is a wedding. They often come in groups and dance in your wedding and you give them a little money, you give them some gifts. But again, I don't want to romanticize this. I don't think they live easy lives otherwise. And this is their main sustenance, uh, living off of like gifts and donations. But having said that, they do occupy this um, space within happy occasions, like I said, within weddings, marriages, births where their presence in the function is considered auspicious. So that's what it is. It's I, I wouldn't, I think calling it drag would be simplifying it a little bit, but it's yeah. definitely uh, queer sexuality. Uh, just thrown in willy-nilly, we're in there, Chada, doing her thing. And you've got to give Chada the director credit because here she is teaching a white Westerner about, you know, Indian culture because I did not know anything about hijras. So thank you. Do you think that this movie is outdated and we should sort of avoid it now? <laughs> or do you, are you or are you like no, go watch it? No, go watch this. I'm like I will never say don't go watch this film. Like I'm against censorship so much politically that I'm like even if it's trash, go watch it and then like then talk smack about it, but <laughs> go watch it. Well, this was so fun. Thank you. Thank you so much, Badatri. You've been listening to Live from Pemberley, our latest season of Hot and Bothered. If you love what we do, please go and support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash hotandbotheredrompod. If you love the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We are Not Sorry Production. Our executive producer is Caitlin Hoffmeister, and we are edited by the wonderful Ariana Nettleman. We're distributed by ACAST. 
Thanks, as always, to our Gene level patrons, Baroness Gretchen Sneegas of Breakfast Carbston, Knight Molly Reilly of Worcestershire Sauce, The Countess of Kristen Hall, Dame Leah B. of Pickleshire, Dame Becky Boo of Tiara Landia, The Marquess Tucker Kratt of Seltzerworth, Duchess Lauren Byer O'Connell of the Isle of Key Lime Pie, and the Right Honorable Claudia Hammerman of Pimpalium. Thank you so much to Badatri Chowdhury for talking to us. And thanks as ever to our team, Lauren Sandler, Laura Glass, Margaret H. Wilson, AJ Uramas, Julia Argy, Nikki Zoltan, Hannah Rehack, Courtney Brown, Natalie Folkert, Stephanie Paulsell, and all of our patrons. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.